Last week, we started looking at the story of Joshua and Jericho, kid's story where the uh, march around the outside of that city and the walls come tumbling down. One of the things that popped out as we looked through that um, was that even though the holiness of God would prohibit our presence with him, right? The holiness of God is pure, it's perfect. There, there is no place for impurity, unholiness of any degree, even a smidgen in his presence. And that, in a sense, prohibits us. And it, it would be violent if we, if we went in there. Yet, Jesus reconciles us to God, ushers us into the presence of God. A beautiful, peaceful, fulfilling place of relationship so that we can relate. Where, where the holiness would exclude us from his presence in Jesus, we have an actual relationship. It's not cold and calculating and antiseptic. It's real. It's where there's interaction. There's learning. There's, there's direct responsiveness at our behest in the presence of God. We can live and breathe and work out life. And this is what we see in the scriptures, right? This responsiveness to God. Uh, yesterday, Tammy and I were uh, packing up some things into the back of my forerunner. It was a bit full back there. Um, I, I closed the back and jumped in. She was driving. We were only going about three minutes away. And she uh, looked down at the backup camera because we were pulling out of the driveway. And she said, something's wrong with the camera. Like, it, I, I can't see what I normally can see. And I was like, oh, you know what? Probably the door, like, didn't go the whole way closed. And it's just on, like, a weird angle or something. And she goes, oh, yeah, you're right. Look, she looks at the warning light on the dashboard. And it shows that the door is open in the back. And I said, well, you know, we're just going three minutes. I'm sure it just didn't click. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and she's like, I don't really want to do that. And I said, okay, you know, fine. If you don't want to drive, door sort of open. I got out. It wasn't sort of open. It was wide open. It was the whole way open. You would think we would have felt the wind and the, and the noise through the back. But not only did we not pick up on that indication, we didn't pick, I, I, I didn't. We did, we did pick up on the indications, actually. I just didn't respond to them. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but I do see that as a normal course of my life. There are indications that I should be responsive to that I am reticent to respond to for whatever reason. We need to dig into that because responding is at the core of who we are how we've been made and how we live. Car gauges tell us trouble is on the way. The red light says if you keep going, you're going to be in a collision. Your GPA might suggest that graduation probabilities are declining. Your blood pressure tells you there is some stress or something wrong with you physically. An elder, someone who's been around the block says that wouldn't be a wise decision. These things are within our, the purview of our life all the time, and they all require a response. And if we don't, life doesn't actually go well. I don't know if you know about the Shema. It's, it's really the foundational Jewish prayer. And you can find it in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, which is the book just before the book of Joshua. And responsiveness is at its core. This is what it says. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is, this is right there in the timing of what we've been looking at it. And here comes the Shema. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly. Hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's the Shema. He says, listen, right? And we've talked about this in the past. The word listen has the context of listen and do something about it, right? When someone says, hey, I don't think you're listening to me. What does that mean? It means you're hearing me, but you're not doing something. God says, the Shema says, listen and do. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love as a response, not a feeling, an action. Responsiveness is at the, is at the root of who we have been created to be. And this, like I said, puts us right back into Joshua. They're across the river now. An amazing situation where the priests go out, the waters hold up, and millions of people walk through on dry land. And Joshua shows us the sort of responsiveness God is looking for in those who say they love him as they carry out the mission of God. I'm going to read the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 straight through, and then we'll kind of pick back through it. Okay, so here's Joshua 5, 13, 15, and then Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us uh, or for our enemies? To which the man says, neither but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua immediately fell face down to the ground in reverence. And then he asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did it. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites, right? The Israelites have pretty significant reputation coming into this space, and they're, they're, they're to be feared at this point. It's, it's a rare occurrence in their existence, but in this case, yes. No one went out, no one came in to Jericho, and the Lord said to Joshua, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city, and you know the story. They've got to march around the city six times, and on the seventh time, they march around seven times, and they've got horns that they're blaring, and the Ark of the Covenant goes before them, and then they loud shout, and then, the, and then God affirms that the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Phenomenal thing, and it, and it happens just as it's suggested that it will. All right, so picking back through this. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looks up, he sees a man standing with a sword drawn, and he went up to him, which isn't a big surprise for Joshua. For most people, maybe not so quick to go up to this guy. It's not a common thing to have a dude with a sword out. In the city, probably illegal, but for anybody, even though you might be wearing a sword, either for regalia or because you're part of the militia, if you've got your sword out, you're looking for a fight. And Joshua just walks up to him, which tells me, or maybe, it's, maybe, it, maybe it reminds me that he has the role that he has for good, for good reason. Like, he's not a timid guy. He has got some bravado. He's got some gravitas. He's been through some battles. He is aware and understands what's going on, and he's not afraid. He's not afraid. But what we'll come to understand is that it's much bigger than what kind of confidence he has in himself. It's with the confidence that he has in God. 
He has been through some serious experiences and has seen God answer, not the least of which is holding up the walls of water in the Jericho. Here's a guy who maybe has all the reason to be confident in himself, but is supremely confident in God. In all of life, he emphatically trusts, and you would see, could say, fears God. Great example. He's a great example of God is in control. Nothing is going to happen to me that isn't being ordained or, uh, or orchestrated by God. I do not need to fear anybody or anything when I fear God. And we see that plain as day in Joshua. The, the, the guy answers his question by saying, neither. And then as the commander of the Lord of the army, that's when Joshua falls face down to the ground in reverence. He is struck he responds really immediately with an awareness of the presence of God. This is likely an angel, a theophany of some sort, but for whatever reason, Joshua didn't recognize it initially, but as soon as he declares who he is, something within him knows immediately this is for real, for true God, an angel of God. He knows that. How does he know that? But what we just explained, he is in constant awareness of who God is. He has been in conversation with him. He knows him. He's been a part of, a, at least a large part of 40 years in the desert when there was really pretty much one objective for God. Then take 40 years to get from point A to point B, from where they were to where he was heading. 40 years of hearing God, listening to God, struggling to obey and understand God. Joshua has been a part of this. They have a constant rhythm of hearing and knowing God. So when God speaks, we know immediately, he knows immediately that it's true. There's no question about it. He's in conversation and in relationship with God. So when he speaks, he knows and he just, he just falls to the ground. He knows he's not the ultimate commander. Here's a guy who has every reason to be confident but he also knows he is designed to be under submission, under authority. And he is. He shows humility and falls to the ground. He knows he is not the guy. The commander of the Lord's army replies to the question, you know, what, what, are you, what is your message for me? Uh, which we'll come back to. But in response to that, he says, here's the message. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did that as well. What we see here is that his responsiveness is grounded, <laughs> pun intended. He says, you're on holy ground in an ongoing life posture of worship and God orientation. I suspect what he meant by this is you're on holy ground is that I'm the Lord of the army of God. I'm, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, and this is holy ground. But it might have been a statement to him. You're on holy ground. That, that could have been the, the response of the action of Joshua to fall in reverence. He was, and he knew he was, on holy ground. All of life to Joshua would be holy ground. And he says, you take off your sandals and remember this is where you are rooted. This is where you are grounded. 
in the holiness of God's word, in the holiness of God's presence. Remember this, take off your sandals. This is where you live. It's not some place that you go on occasion. It is where you are. Take your sandals off, be there, be on holy ground in your life. And he is acknowledging in that very moment, this is where we are, Joshua. Worship. It's a place of worship all the time. It was prayed about. We think about it when we think about Tammy and Lonnie. Worship, what is it? It's, worship is attitudes. We, we tend to think of it in very narrow terms. It's sort of singing and praise and Sunday morning and that sort of things. But worship in its most profound sense is, in, is attitudes and its decisions and its postures and its actions that are reflexive or responsive of having been deeply struck that's what worship is of any sort. When you are deeply struck, what happens when you are moved deeply is your attitudes and your decisions and your postures and your actions, they change. There are athletes and artists and leaders who have qualities and products that move me. I'm sure the same is true for you. They move me to, quote, worship them. <laughs> to pursue them, to elevate their status, to orient my life around them. Are you with me? You know, you know what I'm saying? There are things that move us that cause us to respond to them and to pursue them. Nobody, hardly anybody knows Ava Cassidy because she passed away at a very young age, like 32 or 33. She's a beautiful singer and she covers Fields of Gold by Sting in a way that just moves me. I listen to it regularly. I have Tammy sing it for me regularly. It causes me to research her story and to listen to everything that she sings. We're built to worship. But are we struck like Jesus, like Joshua, like all of God's people by the majesty of God? We're struck by... Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift, right? Any worshiping going on there? In all those cases, we do. But are we, are we as believers, as God-fearing people, struck by the majesty of God? If we are, the next question is obvious. It's the same question that Joshua asked. What message does my Lord have for his servant? If worship is what happens to us and how we respond to the one we worship, then the question is, what do you want me and how do you want me to respond? Louis Giglio uh, says, worship is our response, both personal and corporate, for God, to God for who he is and what he has done, and it's expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Yeah, the fullest expression of worship is an outward uh, attitude, decision, action. And Joshua is ready and willing to understand God's plans, even his change of plans, uh, in spite of our own plans. That's what Jesus just told us. He, in Matthew chapter 7, he said, listen, if you, uh, you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to obey the will of God, which implied there is not your will, but his will. We have to follow him. We have to be responsive to him. We have to listen to him. Joshua is in the middle of a scene, uh, an interaction that demonstrates a posture of responsivity. 
We see it physically, we see it spiritually, we see it missionally. He is a responsive being. He is showing us that worship and the response to worship is a physical reaction. It's a spiritual reaction. It's a missional reaction. But I want to come back to this, the most striking word in this, these, these, this whole text to me is this word, neither. I don't know if it catches your attention like it does mine. But when Joshua, who has been chosen, who has heard from God, understands the mission of God on his life, is on that path and on that mission, asks a very logical question of a guy with a sword, are you with us or are you against us? And, uh, you know, we can say the, the commander of the Lord's enemy, God, God, maybe says neither. <laughs> Have you been there? Have you felt like you've heard from God and you've been walking down a path and you're fairly certain of it and then you don't feel like God is not there or it's not working the way it was? I, I, I have. But he says, but did, I wouldn't say Joshua wasn't in that space. He was very confident and he should be. His instructions were from God and here's God saying, I'm not on either side. This little side note tangent here. There's a cultural warning in this for us. There's been a lot of things over the years, unfortunately, that have differentiated one church from another. You can go back through two centuries and you can see how it is church is distinguished from church. It's changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Increasingly, churches and Christians, quite honestly, are defined oftentimes by secondary causes taking center stage. Political causes, ideological causes, cultural causes, socioeconomic interests, personal passions. We tend to want to co-opt God for our purposes. We tend to love God if he can be co-opted for our purposes. The, the warning, the question we have to always ask of our church and of ourselves is which banner is flying highest on the flagstaff. The wrong flags end up high and flying higher on the flagstaffs of churches and of our personal lives. You can watch, watch this weekend, watch almost any big sporting event where there's a lot of interviews and what are you going to find? Or anything, entertainers alike. I'm not trying to pinpoint anybody. You will hear this message. They will thank God for how he has helped them accomplish their goals. <laughs> That's light. It's great to hear God being involved in the conversation. It really is. But there's a subtle thing going on there that I don't think is malicious or sometimes even intentional. But it captures what it is we need to be warned about is that God isn't in it to help us succeed at what we have intentions to accomplish. You can even go as far as to say his primary objective isn't even that we would succeed in what it is he's asked us to accomplish. There's a much deeper agenda going on here. But the idea of the bumper sticker that has, I haven't seen one in decades, thank, I'm thankful of this. But do you remember this? God is my co-pilot. 
No, he's not. Absolutely, absolutely not. Of course, it's about God's mission and God's plan, not ours. I get that. But still, if Joshua was chosen by God to lead Israel, why would the answer be neither? I, I, it took me a while to get my head around this. Joshua is chosen in a sense because he is on the right track. He has the right character. He has the right posture. He wants what God wants, and God is saying to him, I'm not on your path. I'm not on your side. I'm not on either side. I'm trying to imagine my own reaction in that situation. If I've been praying, I've been obedient, I'm putting my aspirations on, my own aspirations on hold or on the line, and I ask a random dude if he's for or against me, it ends up being the voice of God, and the answer is essentially, I'm not on your side. That's hurtful. That's very hurtful. I might even be angry. I would certainly be confused. Am I on the wrong path? How, how is it that you're not on my side? I'm doing your work. Are you with me on that? Is it just me? And then I realized this isn't about sides at all. It's quite possible that he wasn't actually rebutting the question. It was just an answer. God isn't saying, I'm not on either side, but that there aren't sides. Neither. That's your, that's your world. Your world of this and that and those and them and us and them. I'm not on anybody's side. You can look at just, look at churches. They come apart. Churches come apart because of the sides that they choose on actually very significant issues, right? I know some believers that are completely committed to God. Wonderful, spirit-led people that are completely opposed to any kind of alcohol. And I know some Christians that can really, they can, they can take some alcohol in. <laughs> and they love the Lord and they, see, and they, they even use it as, an, as an, a, an a way to reach others. God's not on either side of that. How do I get started on politics? Holy moly. Both sides, all three sides, whatever sides, God's on that side. He's like, no, I'm not on that side. I'm not on sides. Sometimes God sounds like Jerry Seinfeld, apparently. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not taking sides. I have good friends who speak in tongues. They speak in tongues. I have good friends who believe the spiritual gifts of those sorts have completely ceased. Both are wonderful, believing people, and I know that they are completely sincere in both cases. And God says, I'm not on either side of all of your sides. God's not calling us or choosing us to set us apart as right or better from everybody else. He's setting us aside. He sets his, his people aside for a purpose. For the good of all humanity. All of whom God loves. God loves the whole world, not one side of it. 
Which side are you on? Neither. Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus taught in uh, Luke, uh, and we see it in the book of Luke, but to you who are listening, I say, to you who are responsive, I say, love your enemies. <laughs> Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Matthew covers the same topic. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not about sides. Which side are you on? Neither. I love the world. I'm setting you aside for a purpose, not set you aside as better or right or... Those who God chooses... Um, Adam mentioned this this week when we were studying this passage. I don't know if he got it from somewhere else, but when Adam talks, I usually listen. Those God chooses aren't chosen instead of others, but for others. It's a good word. We're not chosen. We haven't found our way to God in order uh, because we're better than someone else. It's because God has a plan for us. God has a much deeper and grander agenda than helping us with ours. Okay, next difficult thing. Joshua uh, hears is, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with his kings and his fighting men. March around the city. <laughs> with a, with a, I don't know, with the sweep of his arm, uh, God is able to accomplish the end goal. He doesn't even need Joshua for the job he's asking him to do. <laughs> I got this. It's going to be done. The wall's just gonna, I'm just going to make the walls fall down. Here's your job. March around like this, doing this. That doesn't feel great, honestly. Right? That does not feel great. It feels much better. I feel much more valuable, much more meaningful if what I do can be seen to bring measurable results. Right? I feel important if what I'm doing can be translated directly to what is happening. If the outcomes are significant, celebrated, even better, that's what feels good when my actions lead to measurable incomes. And I don't want charity, right? I want, I want it to match even. I want the severity of my action to ref be reflected in the severity of the outcome. I want to work hard and I want to be seen to have worked hard for the big deal. But if God's going to accomplish major things with the sweep of his hand. What is the purpose of my effort? What is the purpose of my obedience if God doesn't need me? <laughs> if he's going to do it without me? Why am I being obedient? I have this question. I, like I said, I want to feel like my life and my leadership matter. 
We have, we're, we're undergoing some, we've been in the middle of some big things, right? Like we're just trying to, we're sacrificing our resources. We're, we're meeting in strange places. We're like doing, we're, we're, we're retooling our staff and you're trying to figure out which way's up and how we got to volunteer. There's so much work to be done to get to where we want to get to next. And I can tell you this. I don't actually have the social capital, the political savvy, the administrative skills, or the financial resources to do what we're doing. Don't get me wrong. I have some of those skills, not just to the degree necessary to build the church we dream of. I I cannot pull it off. My efforts are like oddly applied marching and dancing around the thing. I'm very sincere about it, but it's very clear to me as you have continued to lean forward, to serve, to give. <laughs> Every day we could give you reports of how God has showed up in all kinds of ways to make this thing happen. And it's really, in one sense, hard to feel like, I don't know if I'm really doing anything to affect it. So what's the point of benign obedience if God is going to accomplish big outcomes, what is the point? Well, I would suggest the outcomes that God is looking for are internal. They're personal transformation. They're relational outcomes. They, they are about other people. So I want you to be transformed. I want you to be more like my son and I want you to be uh, more uh, engaging and loving and compassionate for those who are far from God. This is, these are the significant changes. That's what happened in the, for the 40 years in the desert. They accomplished like literally nothing out there. But they did. They learned who God was. They learned how to hear him. They learned how to be forgiven. They learn how to love one another and others. A much, much deeper agenda of God is going on then and for us now. Jesus would say to those who were apart from God, really, in many ways, he would say, you're clean on the outside, but the inside is dirty. You're like nicely painted tombs, but you're dead inside. Throughout scriptures, it's not, Jesus, Jesus pulled this out with great clarity. But God has always been concerned about the heart from the beginning. The heart. Our heart and the heart we have for others. And that is the harder work. That is the harder work. Part of the reason we want to work so hard on the external thing is because working here is even harder. Even harder. How do we develop a responsive heart. I got three things. We can wrap this up. How are you developing a responsive heart? Are you developing a responsive heart toward God? We see all the answers right here from Joshua. The question isn't, are we responsive? Remember, we are responsive beings. It's how we're made. The question is, will you, are you responding to God? Are you one of God's first responders? How do we do it? Here's what we see. I'm just recapping. Worship all the time. Worship all the time. Be moved. Responsiveness begets responsiveness. It's like a muscle. It's like tears. 
Sometimes I don't want to see a sad movie, not because I don't want to see the mad, sad movie, because I don't want to be sad about the other things in my life. And I know if I start crying during the movie, I'm going to start crying about other things I was, should have been crying about before. You know what I'm saying? Same thing with worship. It's like it, you can actually, I don't know what's your thing, if it's music or it's nature or it's serving or it's meditation. Whatever the things of life are that move you deeply, it's okay to use those as a tool for the purpose of responding to God. However you can order and rhythm your life to be feeling things deeply, to be experiencing things deeply, gives you a greater capacity to experience and respond to God. So do it. Don't make them the idol. Don't make them the, the things of the object of your worship. But it's okay to enjoy music. It's okay to enjoy nature. It's okay to enjoy things that move you. That's how you were made. Don't worship them, but allow those muscles to be built so that you can see and respond to God. Worship all the time. Don't be afraid of what you might find when you go deeper. It can be pretty scary, but Jesus will meet you there. He will meet you there. Be ready for worship. Worship all the time and be ready to worship. When God speaks, respond. Be ready for the spirit of God with a sword drawn in the middle of what you're doing. Are you moved by God? Are you impressed by Jesus? Does scripture speak to your soul? I would say give it a chance. Lean into it regularly, always. Learn more about Jesus Look for God. Let scripture speak to your soul. What do you do? Where do you go? What postures do you adopt? What rhythms do you keep that provide regular engagement with God? Jesus, the spirit, the word. The more you do it, the more responsive, uh, the more responsivity um, uh, in the way you remain uh, comes to the surface and you can be more worshipful with God. Adam has put together a, a great devotional. We've got a new series coming uh, called The Garden of God. It's uh, really what we're going to do during the 40 days. Uh, during the Lenten season, I would encourage you to lean into that. It's got worshipful undertones. It's um, preparation for the heart, for the Resurrection Sunday that's coming on March 31st. It's not about the building, although we're going to try to get there by March 31st. It is about our heart, our love for him, our love for others, worship. We want to get our hearts in the right space before we enjoy the great thing that God's doing for us. God is amazing. That's what I'm trying to say. Even more amazing than Ava Cassidy, Patrick Holmes, Taylor, whatever. But you got to get in his presence. you got to get into his game. you got to go to his concerts, hang with his people, read his stuff, serve in the mundane of life, in the midst of your work, in the battles of your ministry. Are you watching for the angels with the drawn swords? Are you ready to drop to your knees at any time to listen for the new instruction? Worship all the time. Next, listen. Listening follows worship. We tend to listen in spurts, just like we worship in spurts. And so it's not surprising that we can be delusioned and be down the pathway of God and be actually on the wrong pathway because we just haven't been continuing to listen. Sometimes we just forget to keep listening. It's dangerous. Pastor Tammy brought this up a couple weeks ago. Imagine Isaac's life if Abraham didn't keep listening. You know that story, right? Isaac was going to lose his life, and then Abraham is, hears from God uh, again. Good thing he kept listening. Listening isn't passive. It's active, and it's multi-layered. Let me tell you this real quick. Listen with the Spirit of God 
prayerfully, listen, with the people of God and with the mission of God in mind. Word of God, right? Word of God. Those, that intersection, spirit of God, word of God, people of God, mission of God. When you only use one of those, like I, if you say, I heard from God, I'm gonna say to you, did you, did you hear from scripture? Did you hear from others that are walking with God? Does it align with his heart and his mission? Any one of those separate from the others usually ends up in bad listening, honestly. Keep listening. Do it in community with the spirit. And another word of warning. Remember, it's hardest to hear God when you think you already know what he's gonna say. <clears throat> we fall into that trap. Scripture, all throughout scripture, it's the people of God who miss God's new movements. <laughs> it's the people who aren't following God, they're usually going, hey, how come you're not listening to your God? Because <laughs> they thought they knew what he was gonna say. We use this flywheel to help us remember this whole process. We listen. Uh, this the, you got that slide? We listen, we hear, we obey, and we help others do it. So the third one, I said, worship, listen, obey, right? It follows listening. You, you worship, worshipful, oriented toward God. Then we hear from God in context, and then we obey, which leads to three things. Better understanding. You don't really fully understand what God's saying until you actually start obeying what he said as best you can understand it. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. That's 1 Corinthians 8. I always say, don't keep learning if you don't keep doing. Don't just keep learning if you don't keep doing. That's how we actually hear better. It leads to your transformation. We already talked about that. But are you participating? Obeying supercharges transformation in your life. You can't get transformation purely through knowledge. And then finally, obedience lead, leads to your expanding heart for others, for the lost. If you come to the third Thursday this week, we do every Thursday, every third Thursday of the month, we equip ourselves, we worship, we pray, and we, and we do some training, equipping. And we're gonna talk about our blessed 10, which is a list of people that are far from God that we are praying for. Obedience always has to do with understanding better. It has to do with our transformation. It has to do with loving others. So you ask yourself questions like this. Who don't you like? Who don't you understand? Who pushes your buttons? Who has different perspectives? Who do you judge? Who's on the wrong side? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to engage? Are you willing to pray? Will you hear them? Can you learn from them? Will you serve them? Can you assume the best of them? Can you give them another chance? Can you apologize? You know the reason they don't, you don't like them is probably because they don't like you. <laughs> and sometimes it's for good reason. And we need to apologize. We just don't know. Are you willing to forgive? This is all part of our obedience. We worship, we listen, we obey so that we can be transformed and be a part of loving the rest of the world. Responsiveness, this, uh, this for Siri is going to stop now. Responsiveness to God rather than the personality and uh, passions of our world is what we're aiming for here our responsiveness to God rather than the personalities and the passions of our world. It takes time, sometimes 40 years. Get used to failure. It's part of transformation. And be grateful for the grace and the forgiveness that's secured in Jesus, the actual and the perfect 
first responder. We have him. Lean in. God, it's our deepest prayer that we would be worshipful, relational, missional people. We know that starts by being oriented to you always, listening and obeying and loving. Help us to be a good church, God. Help us to be your church, your people, responsive to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.